Hello, and thank you for joining Pipettes and Politics, a science policy podcast being brought to you by the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. You're joined by our three hosts. My name is Benjamin Korb. I'm the Public Affairs Director for ASBMB. Hi, I'm Andre Porter. I'm the Science Policy Analyst for ASBMB. Hey, everyone. I'm Daniel Pham, the Public Affairs Manager at ASBMB. And uh, I think the purpose for doing this podcast was... We have conversations in our offices on a daily basis talking about what's happening in Washington, the impact it's going to have on science, and I think it's nice to let you all inside, hear the discussions that we have, hear our feedbacks, hear our analysis, and really kind of pull the curtain back and let you know what happens in Washington. So this is going to be a a new thing. We're going to test it out today, and hopefully there's going to be more episodes and more interaction going forward. If you have questions or feedback, you can tweet us. I am at BW Corb. Andre is. I'm at AN Porter underscore. And I'm at DFAM20. First, before we jump into today's topic, which is going to be discussing uh, tax reform policy and the impact that it may have on graduate students and higher education, we wanted to give you a little bit of feedback about who we are, kind of connect with the audience and give you a sense as to who the. Uh, disembodied voices coming through your radio are right now. So um, I'll start. Uh, Again, I'm Ben. Um, I am not a scientist, I should warn you. I studied political science, which makes me a scientist in the way that Dr. Seuss is a doctor. But I've been doing science advocacy for more than a decade now. Started doing science advocacy in the aerospace and aeronautical community, went to biomedical engineering, and now doing it here for biochemistry and kind of the basic life sciences. I find it interesting. I find it rewarding. I think the work that you all do, provided you're a scientist that's listening, is really amazing and interesting stuff. It makes it easy for me to go to Capitol Hill or talk to the administration about the importance of the research that you all are doing and helping to save lives. Um, Andre, why don't you give us a little bit of a sense as to your background and how you got here? Sure. So uh, my background, my training is in uh, biology. My master's is in behavioral genetics. I've been a almost a decade in the federal government. I worked initially in at the Environmental Protection Agency. I worked on STEM education programs. Then I transitioned to the National Science Foundation, continued working on graduate programs in STEM education, working on capacity issues, diversity, and the and that things of the like. Essentially, my interest here and my interest in STEM is kind of increasing diversity, making sure that we have a strong workforce, making sure that the environment is conducive for good research and uh, good researchers. And that's why I'm here. That's why I work in science policy, because I want to make sure that we are putting forward the best policies possible to make sure America's number one. Now the, the third member of our team is our recovering scientist, Daniel <laughs> Pham. Daniel, why don't you tell us how you got here? Hey, everybody. I'm Daniel Pham. I recently graduated Uh, from Hopkins with a PhD in neuroscience. So yes, I am, in fact, still recovering uh, from all those pipetting days. Um, I started doing some advocacy work at UCLA. I've always been interested in community. I realized how important communities were, and now that I'm here, I've always been interested in going back and giving back. So I did a lot of advocacy with the Vietnamese community and also the LGBT community. So it was natural when I was in science to start advocating for the science community. And I've been interested in empowering scientists and also learning myself how to um, advocate for what we need to 
be successful in science while in grad school. So after I graduated, I did a short fellowship at Research America that gave me more tools to do what I wanted to do. And that was the perfect launch pad for me at my current job. Great. So you've heard a little bit about who we are. Like I said, this is the first episode of many where we're going to dive into some topics. Um, We're going to take a little break right now. On the other side of this break, we're going to come back and we're going to be talking about how proposed tax reform bills that exist today might, might impact you, might impact science down the road. So thank you for joining us and stick around. Like this but want more? Why not visit the ASBMB Policy blog where you'll see news and analysis on all things Washington. Visit www.policy.asbmb.org. All right, hey, thank you for sticking around. As a reminder, this is Pipettes and Politics. I'm Ben. This is Andre. Yes. That's Daniel. What's up? We're still here. What we wanted to talk a little bit about today was tax reform efforts, which is obviously not an issue that a scientific society often has very strong opinions on. But um, there are implications and kind of ripples from the impact that this legislation can have. And so we wanted to discuss them, try to frame them in a way that might be interesting um, in showing how they impact you. So first, we're going to go into kind of the macroeconomics of the deal. The tax cuts are across the board. Um, there are changes to the tax brackets. There are changes to corporate tax levels. There are changes to deductions and what you can deduct and what you can't deduct. Um, if you're a homeowner, I'm sorry, I'm not going to talk to you about the mortgage interest rate deduction thing right now. If you're a business owner, I know nothing about corporate tax rates. But we are going to talk a little bit about the macro impact. Studies have shown and analysis has identified that these taxes, these cuts in taxes, will lead to about a $1.5 trillion deficit over the next 10 years, which is to say they're not paid for. There is not a comparative or complementary reduction in spending. There is only now a reduction in the amount of income and the money that the government is taking in. That's of concern, I think. When you look historically, sometimes when people see massive deficits, they look to programs to cut, and the programs that they look to cut aren't necessarily defense programs, but they're non-defense programs, and guess what? Federal science is is non-defense. Andre, uh, I'm wondering, you know, historically, this isn't the first time that tax reform efforts have started. This isn't the first time that there have been tax cuts that weren't necessarily paid for. Do we have kind of a historical narrative that we can draw on that can give us a sense as to what if these cuts were to pass, what that impact might be. Yeah, I think so. So as a quick background, the first education tax credit started in the 50s. And since the 50s, there's been different forms of tax credits focusing on different populations. But uh, if we go back to the Obama administration, for instance, they had a tax cut that also was somewhat paid for, but it did impact the deficit and also increase the deficit. The Bush administration notoriously put through a number of tax credits that weren't paid for, and they also had a war. Um, I think the big difference when we're looking at the tax cut here is that most of the credits that are being phased out impact the everyday man, impact education, impact institutions. The Bush tax cut, to its credit, even though it's not paid for, uh, at least tried to, the first one in 2001, tried to lift up the middle class and provide some additional support for education. However, because it wasn't paid for, as we as some of the analysis have said, the Bush tax cuts 
today account for a third of the federal deficit. So there is some precedent for creating these decreasing credits and creating these cuts that don't really benefit the economy and then eventually create this this monster that we have to deal with down the line. And, and now, again, that, that wasn't the plan, right? I mean, when you passed these tax cuts, the, the, the quote-unquote Bush-era tax cuts, right. you know, the first wave started in 2001, mm-hmm. the second wave was in 2003. You know, they weren't sold as a tax cut that's going to not impact the economy, right? I mean, the, I, if I remember correctly, the first Bush-era tax cut was everybody's getting a check, Every, right? Every mm-hmm. single American was going to yep. get a check in the mail. I remember I got mine. <laughs> Daniel was a baby. He may have gotten his <laughs> Andre. I, I, I'm, I'm younger than Daniel. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm the only one who got a check. Okay? And I was supposed to use that to get an 8-track or a cassette player or whatever the technology at the time was. Um, but what happened was most Americans took that money and either paid down a credit card or they, saved or, it. Or they put the money in a savings right. account, right? That money didn't go into the economy in the way that it was intended to go to. So keep that in mind because the analysis today of this t- this tax cut is taxes, you know, a reduction in corporate taxes will lead to a reinvestment in corporate dollars into the economy, into infrastructure, um, into corporate upgrades, into salaries for employees. And those that may be the case. In an ideal world, that may be the way it comes out. But historically, we don't exactly have a trend line that shows that. So, right. yep. so that's something that we should be concerned about, right, Andre? I think 100% is something we, we should be concerned about because of this whole egg before the chicken situation where you're giving people money and expecting something to, to materialize out of it that's there's no real and two thirds of us have a science background there's no real data that really exists that shows that if you do this this will come out of it there are models that exist Right. Uh, I think the Laffer model is one of the models that talks about providing cuts up front and then how it's going to create a windfall of economy and economic energy however it's not realistic or it hasn't been shown to be realistic well, in a we're, we're still waiting for the trickle down economics from the <laughs> 80s to co- you guys again won't remember that but no, we're no, still no, waiting for that to come into the, effect the, we're going to jump into now well, we're going to take a little bit of a turn to some of the specifics now daniel we're going to talk a little bit about Imagining you're a graduate student. Okay, so one of the proposals in this tax reform bill is to take the tuition, which the universities currently, you have a waiver, I believe it's the one... Uh, the 117 Section D. Okay, so the 117 Section D waiver, which allows you to not include tuition as a taxable income, kind of in your daily basis. Um, in the House version that's being debated right now, they repeal that waiver. Um, from what I understand, in the Senate version, they do not uh, uh, repeal that waiver. So that you know that's going to impact the direction that things go. Right. But we should really take this seriously because you know the House may consider it, and we may go to conference and have to kind of figure out what's going on here. So, right. um, Daniel, why don't you explain to me kind of what that waiver means and kind of what the dollars and cents of it might be? Yeah, sure. So as a grad student, my stipend was around twenty-eight thousand dollars a year. So let's just round it up to thirty thousand dollars a year. Hold um, on, have you? Have you filed your taxes properly in the past couple of years? I don't. I have. To get in yes. <laughs> okay. I'm pretty sure it's, okay. it's, it's legit. Okay. Good. Um, Sorry. So, Hopkins tuition this year was fifty-two thousand dollars. So instead of being liable for thirty thousand dollars, this new Republican plan would make me liable for eighty-two thousand dollars. Therefore, my tax. The, the amount of taxes I owe is instead of $3,000, is actually going to be almost $10,000. Um, 
So if we actually do the math, I actually would have to have almost $500 less per month to spend on living, essentially. And, you know, looking back, I was making about $1,800 a month. And with the new tax plan, I would only make $1,200, $1,300 a month. That means I could only spend about $20 a day on things if my rent were $700 a month. However, I was one of the lucky ones because my tuition was, or my, my stipend was actually higher than you know, a number of schools. So people, um, certain grad programs only pay around fifteen dollars to $20,000 a year. So imagine getting paid that much and also living in a city like San Francisco, LA, New York, Miami, anywhere that's not Baltimore. Um, <laughs> I don't know how I could live. So yeah, I mean, this would definitely affect my decision to go into grad school in the first place. And I think it would also really cut down on the diversity of grad students, which is already a problem. I mean, we're going to lose out on economic diversity, um, cultural and racial diversity. Like, you know, we didn't come in from money and my parents wouldn't have any money um, to cover any tuition. So I think this plan as it stands would be detrimental to the science community. Yeah. So let's jump into it just a little bit. Right. So first off, we should recognize that Johns Hopkins University is not cheap, but is probably on the higher end in terms of tuition costs. So if you're listening to this, you may be going, you may be a graduate student at a university where you don't have as many credit hours. um, Your tuition is not as expensive. So the impact to you may not be as hard as it would be to Daniel um, if he were still in the lab, and thank goodness we've, oh, we've rescued God. you from the lab. <laughs> um, but for some, for other students, this is obviously something that's going to have an impact. And so, as a society, that and you know, over the past year, we've been really proud of the fact that we represent science largely, but also recognize that science is made up of individual scientists, and and you all, you know, make it happen. And, and the graduate students are the next generation and the next wave of who the scientists are going to be. Th- there may be impacts to all of this. Um, and those impacts may be changed. I mean, they, they may not be quite as drastic as they are, but let's let's jump in a little bit. So let's take the worst case example. OK, so mm-hmm. you're um, you're not Daniel, but you're Daniel's twin, Randall, um, at Johns Hopkins <laughs> University. Hi, Randall. Um, hi, Randall. <laughs> How's it going? Um, so I you now are making your your stipend makes it almost impossible for you to live. Right. And so now. Yeah. The whole sign and that is happening across the scientific enterprise everywhere. So we need to make a course correction, right? We either need to reduce tuition, right? Which probably won't happen. Pretty difficult. <laughs> yeah. Pretty difficult. And we could have podcast after podcast about why tuition <laughs> rates are not going to drop in this country. Or the the other side of it is is that your salary is going to have to go. The stipend that you're right. going to get is going to have to go up. Which probably won't happen either. Right. But let's pretend like it does. Yes. Okay. Let's pretend like the government now or or the research community doubles the stipend of graduate students. Where's that money coming from? It would come from the, the research budgets. Research. Yeah. We would lose the number of grad students we can admit. Cut down on grants and postdocs. Who cut down on research being conducted? If the students are supported by the, the schools solely. It's cutting down on endowments, it's cutting down on provost funds, it's cutting down on funds to keep the lights on, keep the buildings running. It, it, it's a big impact. So in order for, so the end result of a, of a tax change like this is either one of two things. Either one, it's a disincentive. There, there will be fewer graduate students who go down this pathway because 
the economics are just so terrible. You know, you're you're not bringing home eighty two thousand dollars. You're bringing home thirty thousand dollars, but you're paying tax on eighty eighty thousand. Right. That's unfair. So people are maybe going to go the other way. Mm. The alternative is stipends go up, but that means the cost of research goes up. So in an environment that we're living in now, in which advocates like the three people around the table are fighting tooth and nail to get more dollars into research, those dollars are getting automatically eaten up just to kind of increase. Now, Andre is, is, is brushing his beard here. I don't think he agrees with me. No, I agree with you 100%. I have a very controversial take that I won't say. We'll say it. So we talk about pipeline issues. We talk about bloated pipeline issues. A part of the discussion a couple months ago was dealing with uh, capping funds for researchers, dealing with postdoc money going up and how that would affect research budgets. If graduate student money goes up, it's going to affect research budgets, but it's also going to cause less students to go into grad school, which is one of the issues that we have right now. We have less less graduate students being trained. So we have graduate students being trained to be researchers, being PIs, being faculty. Because budgets are so big and because we had the the Obama tax credit that created this huge windfall of money instead of research enterprise, we kind of had an over-proliferation of postdocs and graduate students. The positive side is somebody could come out of this and say, well, we have less grad students. Hey, we, we, we corrected the ship. We're not going to crash. We don't have this proliferation of students. That's A. Porter. Look, these are the the reason for having this discussion and starting this podcast is so that we can kind of dive into and think about and talk about um, what is essentially a topic that a scientific society like ASBNB would never really get involved in, which is tax reform, how the downstream effects and maybe unintended consequences of this might be. One consequence might be people run from science. Another consequence might be science costs more. The other consequence might be only the really dedicated that can afford to do it, mm. continue in science, right. and you kind of end up maybe relieving some of the pressure on the pipeline is, is what you're trying but, to say. Yeah, and to, but to um, to Daniel's point, or Randall's point. It, <laughs> that, was, that was Daniel speaking. That was Daniel speaking, okay. It may also create a big, uh, a huger diversity issue than we already have, because to your point that people who can afford to be in that type of a tight situation or that type of a, a lopsided situation where you're not bringing home as much as you should be bringing home, they can afford to be a part of that because they have a support system with their family, support system with their community that helps them kind of take the punches of not making a lot of money as a postdoc or grad student. So, yeah, and so you know, this is I think what we're what we're identifying as we talk through this is there are so many different threads that you pull on on a really complex issue like this, and I'm willing to assume. And look, I assume that members of Congress on both sides of the aisle are doing what they think is best. I, I really do. I don't kind of bring in that people are political hacks and are just kind of doing it for self-interest and self-preservation, but they're trying to make an improvement. But these may be, this level of discussion are things that maybe, you know, Paul Ryan is not talking, you know, with his colleagues about thinking, you know, what's the impact on the scientific enterprise going to be if we repeal this, this tax credit or the waiver? And so this is really kind of an interesting thing to do and to dive into. For the record, the society that, that we work for has come out in opposition to the tax reform um, as we've seen it. Um, now, that doesn't mean that, that that's going to change. It's unlikely that we're going to strongly endorse a tax reform bill because, again, it is so far outside of the realm and kind of the, you know, the sweet spot for what we do our advocacy on. 
But because of the impact of graduate students, which are our members and our, our future members, because of the impact on universities with endowments, students with student loans, um, because of the macroeconomic issue of the need to cut in order to balance the budget after this, it's kind of forced groups like ours and others, there are lots of others out there, to come to the table and to make a, kind of make a decision and make a recommendation. And in this instance, we're recommending go back to the drawing board. If you're going to make a proposal like this, I understand, but um, maybe this isn't the way to do it. And so, the closing thoughts. Is that the budget's not even balanced, even with all these cuts. Right. If the Republicans spoke about creating tax reform that was budget neutral, this isn't a neutral proposal. So how can they move forward with it? I mean, they, I know how they can move forward with it, but how could they, in their conscience, move forward with a budget proposal that's not budget neutral? It's not. It's nonsensical. Right. And look, we've seen. I've seen quotes from people, um, members of the Freedom Caucus, that have argued that this is their first bite of the apple. Okay. Step one of their fiscal plan is tax reduction. Step two is reductions in spending in order to pay for the, the tax the reductions in taxes. And if that's the case, I think we have some difficult times ahead of us. The the current budget proposal that just passed through the House was eight hundred million dollars below the sequestration level, uh, below the Budget Control Act levels of federal spending. And those federal spending levels are already at near historic lows right now. So a lot of a lot to watch here, a lot to pay attention to, a lot more for us to get involved in. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Andre, for, for kind of get, going into it a little bit. Thank you, you, for listening. Again, um, this is Pipe Bats and Politics, and we'll be back. This is Angela Hopp, Communications Director for the ASBNB. I'd like to invite you to join us in San Diego in April for the Society's Annual Research Conference. The ASBNB Annual Meeting offers presentation opportunities for researchers at all career stages, compelling scientific symposia, and fun networking and professional development events. Submit your abstract by December 7th to be considered for a spotlight talk or poster presentation. Visit ASBNB.org for more information about the meeting and to learn how to apply for travel grants. I thank you all for your time and listening. Again, this has been Pipettes and Politics. If you like us, tweet us at BWCorb. At AMPorter underscore. At DFAM20. Or you can send us an email, publicaffairs at ASBNB.org. Um, if you do tweet us, do it hashtag Pipettes and Politics. We all have 280 characters now, so we can go with a lot more with that. Thank you, and we will talk to you next time. Take care. <laughs>